Welcome back to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future for the second half of our interview with the co-founder of Octopus Group, Simon Rogerson. It's worth checking out the first half as it's been one of our most ever listened to episodes if this is your first time listening to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. In this episode, we focus on how Octopus grew and how you keep a culture when over the course of 20 years, you go from zero employees to 750. How do you keep that special disruption, that entrepreneurial nature that Octopus is so well renowned for? It's not a simple process and it particularly hasn't been during the pandemic. So it's worth listening to what Simon thinks about that and also what the future of energy holds in particular when it comes to the Octopus Group and why he thinks Octopus Energy could become the Amazon of the energy industry. We also have a new feature at the end of this show, which I'm sure you'll find really interesting and it's worth sticking around for the credits at the end. Simon, you've scaled a company from, you know, three founders at the outset to 750 plus now. What are your reflections on having done that? And what were the sort of significant key moments of, of change in that, in terms of culture and, uh, and hiring people? Oh, that's a, uh, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, so I'd say that when the company is so right down, right at the very beginning, so back in March, 2000, when we set the business up for probably the first year, 18 months, it's just about survival. So it, it definitely wasn't a grand vision. We thought the financial subsidy was broken and we wanted to change that, but we did, it was literally about survival. It was about getting, raising the money. It's about uh, becoming regulated, launching your first product, getting your first customer. I still remember our first customer is a guy called Mr. Gower. Uh, he said, we used to get the checks sent to us directly. So I, uh, I opened the check in our office and it was our first check we'd received from this guy. And I thought, anyway, I'm going to call him up and say, thank you and tell him all about Octopus because I was so excited. So, I, and, and in hindsight, uh, that was a mistake. You shouldn't call your investor up to tell them you they're the first investor ever in your fund <laughs> management company because that scares them. But I, I sometimes use it because we cared so much about that. So when you set your own business up, you realize without any customers, you don't have a business. They pay your wages. It's really, really obvious. But I sometimes think when we're, we're adding, including the energy business, adding, you know, three, 4,000 customers a day now, are we making all those customers feel like Mr. Gower did when he first joined? So that's really important. But right at the very start, for beginning stage of the business, just about survival. I think the next stage is probably up to about, 30, 40 people. Um, the business can be run almost entirely command and control. So it's very easy to determine what every single person does and how all those tasks taken together uh, will deliver on your target for the business. Again, it's very target driven. It certainly was for us. Uh, you don't have to worry about communication. It just happens. You're all working in the same room, probably. There's no politics. Uh, everything's very straightforward. Uh, the next stage then is probably from about 50 people to about 200 people, I'd say. And that's when you have, certainly for me, I had to work very hard at communication. So, you know, what do I do now? Every single Friday, uh, I send an update out to the company. And I've done that for about the last 10 years or so. And, I, and I'll send it out on any topic I want. So it might be about our business. It might be about someone else's business. It might be about mental health. It might be about leadership. It might be about psychology. It might be stuff that I think is interesting and stuff that I think will get them thinking in a slightly different way. Uh, but a lot of it is about communication. And then um, 
you need to start adding more structure in. So you start need to start doing reviews. You need to see that you need to start doing one to ones on a more regular basis. You need to put more process in place. Um, and sometimes that's that's difficult for entrepreneurs because lots of entrepreneurs will kind of rile against process because it slow, slows things down. It might seem like it's bureaucratic, but you need to make sure the foundation of your business is really solid, or you won't be able to continue to scale. Um, now, personally, I guess some of the reflections I've had is, you know, once the business got above about 500 people, um, people stop seeing me as Simon. So they start seeing me as, oh, he's the chief executive. And so it's more difficult for me to engage with them because I start to become a title rather than a person. Uh, and I don't want that. It's why now I always work uh, in our reception. So we have an open plan office. Um but, but I will always work in reception and that way I get to talk to the guests who come in, but also as people walk past me over the course of the day, I'll have lots and lots of conversations and that's a nice way to try and break that barrier down that comes with hierarchy. I think the only reason to have a hierarchy is so if you need it to make a decision, but other than that, I don't think it's a great, uh, I don't like hierarchical organizations because I think it squashes ideas out of people. Um, and the other point I make is probably until we became about 400 people, I interviewed every single person that we hired and I, yes, I made lots of mistakes, but when you interview thousands and thousands of people, you make less mistakes as you keep doing it. And I think, you know, for, for us, the culture of a business is simply down to its people and you've got to get that bit right. So I spent years and years and years learning how to interview people, looking for the right skills, looking for the right culture. And until I became pretty good at it. So, you know, cu culture is driven by your people. So you've got to hire the right ingredients in the first place. So you can't outsource your recruitment to other people. I think you need to do, you need to be very involved in it yourself. Um, and then the last thing I'd say is across all these different stages, whether it's when you're two people, five people, 500 people, a couple of thousand people, you need to encourage, I think you need to encourage people to take risks. So, so many people have been conditioned over their life not to take risks. So, you know, remember your time at school when people would hand marks back to you and it'd be covered in great big red ink when you made a mistake or you thought differently, or you all have to learn to do it this way because that's the way we've got to do it. And so you end up hiring people who, you know, they've not really failed at anything in their life. So they've done well at their GCSEs, they've done well at A-levels, they got the degree, they might become an accountant or they've got professional qualification. They probably didn't even fail their driving test. And that makes it challenging them, challenging for them because they don't like to fail because they don't want to look embarrassed in front of their colleagues. And that for me is something you have to break down really quickly. You want a culture where, you know, octopus almost becomes an army of entrepreneurs. People are prepared to take risks, uh, to do things without being scared of the consequences of getting things wrong. And that for me is how business learns, how it adapts, how it stays agile, even as it scales. So that's been really important to me as well. I can confirm that you do sit in reception because when I was in over the over the <laughs> summer months, you were there, even though there weren't many many people around. Um, I, just a couple of reflections I have just on working government. And when I was in number 10, I remember one of my friends saying to me after being there for a month, they said, is there a lot of cleverest person in the room syndrome? Mm -hmm. And I remember saying that, that there isn't that, you know, you're in Downing Street, you're sort of surrounded by the brightest and the best. But I said, the thing that I have been struck by is there is so much of, let me tell you why that won't work. The kind of mm -hmm. ass covering mentality, for want of a better phrase, I've, I did find extraordinary and i do put that down to why government doesn't get a lot done sometimes in this space and it's very different to a kind of the entrepreneurial nature the fear of failure 
because of the blowback from the media and the public as well as completely understandable. Having said that, I always think there's an irony in the phrase of all political careers end in failure. And part of me thinks, well, almost all careers that are successful end in failure because you've got to keep trying and you've got to keep pushing. And that, you know, ultimately, whatever your view of top politicians, they are quite impressive and resilient people to kind of go for all the things that they, they do. And so I always just think that that is like, if your career doesn't end in political failure, it probably means that, you know, you didn't sort of try enough and you didn't try to keep going, which is what defines them. But how do you go about encouraging failure? Because I know that one of the things that you do is springboard, which I think is a fascinating program and would be really keen to hear how that has impacted the, the business and just explaining a bit about it as well for listeners that haven't heard of it. So I think one of the most important things, I think, especially in a leader is the sense of uh, vulnerability. So just a recognition that you, you, you're a long way from, uh, so I certainly am a long way from perfect. So I make zillions of mistakes. I've made zillions and zillions of mistakes since I set Octopus up. And I think it's just the being open and being prepared to say, look, I've got that one wrong. And here's why I got it wrong. Uh, and I'm going to try and correct her. Or I'll do something different. And, uh, and I'm quite relaxed about that. It doesn't bother me. Um, because I know out of all those learnings, I get better. The business gets better. I get better. And I think just people giving people the confidence to say, look, it's okay to try different things and to fail. It doesn't matter. We'll be fine. You know, you never bet the business. You never risk anything too dramatic. But the world is full of these great big companies that struggle to innovate. And, you know, you can look at, you know, countless industries. You look at, you know, what happened when uh, Tesla arrived on the scene and said, look, electric vehicles will be the future. I mean, you know, the, 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 all the big combustion engine firms, they either lied and covered up their emissions uh, to pretend they were a bit better than they really were, or, or they moved to a hybrid because they find it so difficult to adapt and to change. And, uh, you know, certainly in life and in business, when change happens to you, it's very, very painful. You have to go with it. And it normally creates someone like a, a Musk, a massive disruptor to change the way people see an industry and see things. Uh, and, you know, he's done that very successful. But this ability to be vulnerable, I think, is really important. And certainly when you get older, and this is particularly true of men and men of a certain age, kind of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 47, so uh, probably 40s and 50s uh, upwards, they find it really difficult to admit that they are wrong and that they've made a mistake. So they almost start behaving a bit like the CIA. So it's deny, 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 make counter accusations. It's anyone but me. And that's a really unhealthy uh, relationship to have with your coworkers, to have with your business, because it's okay to make a mistake. So I think vulnerability is really important. But, you know, one of the best ways we've done it actually was, was as you mentioned, this, this program called Springboard. So if you ask friends or people generally, you know, why have you not set your own business up? People always give you the same two reasons. And the first reason is they said, oh, I just haven't had the idea yet, right? And I think that's a cop-out. I don't think that's true. It's almost never about the idea. It's not like an apple falling on your head moment. You can steal someone else's idea and just execute it way better. So it, it, business is, is genuinely about stealing other people's ideas. Just make sure they're the good ones uh, and, and applying it to your own business and applying it slightly better or slightly differently um, uh, and learning from other people, that is all good. So I think that's a cop out when people say they haven't had the idea, but then there's a very real reason when people say, you know, I just can't take the risk. And normally they can't take the risk because of what's going on in their life. So 
They might have a husband or a wife or a partner or children or dependents, and therefore they can't take that risk. And they really want to, and they've got this passion burning inside them. And I know just how fulfilled I feel and how lucky I feel to be an entrepreneur. I wouldn't change it for the world. And so, you know, octopus is in a lucky position um, financially. So we're able to say to people, look, if you've got your own idea and you want to follow your dream, well, go for it. Yeah, just leave octopus. We'll give you some money. Um, we'll give you some money to get you started. And that's typically, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 pounds. And we'll say, just go and try and make it happen. And we'll do everything in our power to make you successful. We'll take a tiny shareholding in their business, normally less than, well, or always been less than 10%, I think, um, in their business. And then we'll do, you can use all our resources whenever you want, and we'll try and help you. But at the end of the day, if in six, nine months time, it's not working uh, and, and you've tried and you've failed, that's absolutely fine. You can come back to Octopus and we'll give you your old job back. And that's just giving them this safety net to just go and try. And we partly do that because it makes us feel good. And, but we also partly do it because I know these people will be more useful to us having tried and failed than never having tried at all. So, you know, my, my advice to anyone who's sitting on the fence thinking, oh, shall I do my own thing or should I not? You should absolutely do it. Like you get one chance, one chance at life. Um, and even if it doesn't work, you'll learn so much. And it gives you a passion and a purpose, which is really difficult to recreate unless, you're, uh, and, unless you genuinely love the business you work in. And to ask another sort of uh, perhaps unmale question or kind of a vulnerable side of it, you mentioned your kids earlier and you obviously the first one must have arrived me doing some maths on a piece of paper here, but just a couple of <laughs> years into the, into the business, how did that impact and change things for you? Do you know what? So there was a, uh, this was, we must have set uh, Octopus up probably. Octopus had been going a couple of years. So uh, the uh, the girl I was going out with at the time was called Claire. This is when I f- first set the business up. This is back in uh, 2000. And I'd be going out with her for a few years. And setting up the business is like, it's all consuming, genuinely all consuming. And I don't want anyone to reach for a hanky or, or feel sorry for me. But you know, the first whatever it was, 12, 18 months, we didn't pay ourselves a salary. We were literally living on air. And uh, she worked at an organization called Bloomberg and she worked in their operations team. And I, I think she was probably earning uh, about low 20, maybe mid 20,000 pounds, something like that, 25,000 pounds. And so we were getting by on that because I put all my savings, I had about 20, 30,000 pounds by that time. Uh, I put all of that into Octopus to uh, get off the ground as a guy, as a Chris. So you're living on nothing and it doesn't bother you. You don't feel funny about it other than you've got to get from month to month. And I had a flat that I bought where I put a small deposit down on it and it had gone up in value. And and then Claire, who is now my wife, and we've been married uh, a long time now, said, well, I'm, I'm pregnant. So we sold the flat we lived in. Um, we took the money from that. We moved into rented accommodation in Blackheath. And that was fine. That was kind of one of life's adventures. Um, but did it make it difficult to build a business and run a business when you're the only breadwinner? <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're not earning very much money. And you've got a little one to support and you've got a wife to support and you've got a business to try and build. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. I think part of the advantage of being really young is you have all this naivety. So you don't quite think about it in the way I might think about it as someone in their mid forties now. Um, so I think I was, you know, I was, I was very lucky and I'm a very supportive family, but it's, but it's challenging. Like say I'm a business with little people, with little children, when people are depending on you is more difficult, which is, I guess, part of why while we set up Springboard as well. But um, they were very fun. They were very fun years. I wouldn't change them for anything. I mean, you just learn so much stuff. 
you know, when I, I love my children to bits and octopus comes a very close second. Uh, and that's how I've always thought about it. And people find that really difficult to understand, but that's the power of having something you've built and you've created. And that's why I want other people who are thinking about this journey just to go on it, just do it. And you'll, you'll create this connection and sense of purpose and reason to get out of bed, which you can't come close to for, for most people. I mean, the world's full of, I've got lots of friends who are accountants or lawyers and, you know, do any of them actually enjoy their job? Not really. Um, they're just caught in a job now where they earn an awful lot of money. Um, and their standard of living's risen to reflect that. But they didn't really enjoy, most of them, uh, don't really enjoy what they take. I, I say that. I, I'm yet to meet a lawyer who enjoys their job. Uh, <laughs> do, you think, do you think having kids made you more efficient almost, perhaps in the way that you spent your time at all? I mean, that's something that I've heard a few people and, and entrepreneurs say is that actually having kids almost made them better at running the, the business. Because when you're young, you can you can kind of make up for your deficiencies by just working all hours of, of the day. But when you've got little people, but that gets a lot harder. Um, partly sometimes because you haven't quite got the the energy that you used to have if you're being woken up during the evening. Um, do you know what I don't I didn't think it oh it only had a massive impact on me. I I'm uh I've always been quite a high energy person. I don't know why. I've just I've always been quite high energy, and I don't seem to get you know famous last words. I don't seem to get tired. So I, so I don't feel tired. Uh, I'm sure even when I had very little sleep with with little people, I, I've never really felt tired. I don't have an enormous amount of sleep now. Not not out of choice. I just I just wake up really early. Um, and and I don't mind that. Uh, and I think it's one of these things. It's very un it's very un PC to say it, but. Uh, you know, everyone will talk about work-life balance and you need, need to do this. And it's all very, uh, very on trend, right? If you want to build something exceptional, you're going to have to work really, really, really hard. You're going to have to make massive sacrifices uh, and how hard you work is directly correlated to how successful you're going to be. There's no way around that. Uh, you, you can say you want work-life balance, but if you want to build a business, you, it's not going to happen. But I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So it's not going to make you unhealthy, hopefully. And if you really love what you do, working really hard is probably going to make you happier. So, you know, everyone works in a different way. And, and I don't think there's one way. There's not one right way for everyone. But for me, uh, I like being I like being on. I like focusing. I like working. I, I don't work really hard to prove a point to anyone. I work really hard because I enjoy it. And, and that's why I feel so fortunate. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's really, it hasn't really changed in 20 years. And I don't feel any less uh, motivated today uh, than I did right at the very beginning. I have anything I'm more excited because I think we can make more impact and we can have more, create more change in the world around us. Because now we have, you know, we've got 10 and a half billion pounds of other people's money and we have an energy co company with, you know, 17 million customers around the world. We can build something really, really special, I think. So, you know, if anything, I get more excited about it. How big can Octopus go and, and so on? And you said, that, look, for the next 10 years, it's kind of going to be energy and financial services based is, is going to be the, the kind of two core sectors, as we discussed, you know, two of the biggest sets anyway. Partly talks about maybe education being an ambition at, at some point. But, you know, you're 20 years in, you know, you're only halfway through your kind of career, potentially, maybe even longer than that, knowing you're a little <laughs> bit, Simon. Where, where can you go? You know, what's the, you know, what is at the mountaintop? 
Well, do you know what? I can, I can say this because because uh, I wasn't the I wasn't the founder of it, and I don't run the business uh, uh, in Octopus Energy. I think Octopus Energy. I describe this occasionally to people. For me, being really personal, I think Octopus Energy is a once in a generation opportunity. Uh, I have never seen a business like this, and we've backed hundreds and hundreds of companies and hundreds and hundreds of management teams. I've never seen a company this well positioned in an industry that is going to change beyond recognition over the next 10, 20 years and their ability to use technology to accelerate the world's transition to renewable energy, to make it faster, to make it cheaper, and to have an enormous impact on the world around them, to have hundreds and hundreds of millions of customers. I think the opportunity is absolutely there and it's there for the taking. And that for me is something really, really special. You know, someone's going to build the Amazon of energy. Uh, they're going to do it. And I think Octopus has a good a chance of, uh, of anyone of doing that. Um, and they've shown that not only in the energy business they're building themselves, but how you, they're using their technology platform to transform other people's energy businesses because that gives them more impact. It create, allows them to create more change in the world around them. So, you know, that for me, the, the, the top of that mountain, I can't even see it. It's, you know, miles through the sky. And however big I think that business could be, the reality will be it's even bigger than that. Um, and in financial services, you know, we, we talked about one of the businesses we have, Octopus Money Coach, millions of people, millions of people just in this country uh, need help with financial literacy. They need help living the lives they want to live. And, you know, I, I could go on. Our business, they're so, it's, it's in such an exciting point for our business. Where will it end up? Well, I hope, I hope it never stops. I hope, the, I hope the, the gold medal is always slightly out of reach. And the journey just keeps continuing and continuing. And I'm here when I'm 75 years old and people are like, oh God, he's still here. But I still love it and I still enjoy it. And I still get a kick out of it. Um, and then I can look back and say I was part of building that business and it's really special. And that's what motivates me. That's what I get excited about. Uh, I'd like to build a company that I'm really proud to talk to my grandkids about. When you say the Amazon of energy, what could that look like in, in practice? Because I think that's a really interesting phrase. Oh, I mean, you just, so Amazon does, uh, well, Amazon's got two businesses, right? So it's got the thing that sells you millions and millions and millions of things. And then it's got Amazon Web Services. And, you know, our Octopus Energy has its own technology platform in Kraken, which is the technology that will allow the world to accelerate its transition to renewable energy. But it also has this big vision for what the energy industry should look like. So how people should use uh, batteries, how people should use electric vehicles, how you should create community energy schemes, how you should have tariffs which are agile, which change when the wind's blowing or when the sun's shining or when the price of energy changes. And they've got these three ingredients. They've got billions of pounds of renewable energy assets. They've got an amazing technology platform. They have millions of customers. It's putting those three ingredients together to say, you know, what's the future going to look like? Could you ever imagine living in a home where the energy meter ran backwards? That might seem extraordinary today, but it might not be so extraordinary in, uh, in five, 10 years time. Can you imagine if you did the electrification of heat where you replace gas boilers with ground source heat pumps or air source heat pumps? You, you, this is all possible. Um, and that for me is, is really exciting. I mean, decarbonation is just, uh, is just absolutely going to happen. Everyone cares about it. Businesses care about it. Governments care about it. Consumers care about it. Um, it's going to happen. What's the Amazon of energy look like? It has hundreds and hundreds of millions of customers. It turns over 
uh, 50, 100 billion pounds a year. Um, and, you know, did, not forgetting this is a business that's gone from startup five and a bit years ago uh, to currently doing a run rate probably of about three billion pounds of revenue a year. So it's already grown, you know, enormously. And the potential to go from three billion pounds of turnover to 20, 30 billion pounds of that, it's there. They've gone from being in one country to being in seven countries. They're repowering and rebuilding Eon in the UK. They're doing Origin in Australia. They're rebuilding, uh, you know, the uh, platform for Tokyo Gas in Japan, in Asia. It's just, I mean, it's the opportunity is there. It's on their doorstep, um, and they've got they've got more opportunity than they know what to do with. But they also have an opportunity to, to redefine what the industry looks like, uh, and that gets really exciting. A big part of that um, electrical energy story will be electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles particularly the latter could have an enormous impact on the way that society changes where do you think we are on that road in terms of of that happening and and what does the future look like in that space to you um i think it's a uh, i think it's a tough one so you know, what will it happen it will definitely happen i think the 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 argument and discussion is over what time period so the smartest, some of the smartest people in the world have been working on this for a very long time. And these are very, very smart people with no limit on the amount of capital they can spend. So they're spending billions and billions and billions of dollars. And they've got 99% of the way there from what I've read and what, um, what I understand. It's getting the final 1% seems unbelievably difficult to do. So, you know, fully autonomous vehicles in all situations is, you know, you, you'll, re, you'll speak to some of the engineers, which is still having a bit of a problem when we're turning left. And it's that final 1%. And that's the real challenge. And, you know, what speed is that going to come on, uh, uh, happen over? Um, I'd guess probably in the next decade. Um, and I think it's, it's normally the way we do people overestimate how quickly you'll get there, but then underestimate the long-term impact of that change. And I think this is another example of that happening, uh, where people overestimate how quickly we get there and the impact, uh, and then long-term, they'll underestimate just how big a deal that's going to be. So just like the shift to renewables or thinking about fund management, people caring as much about the impact that money has rather than just the return it generates, uh, long-term, that's absolutely going to happen. And the future of ESG and, and impact in investing, I mean, this is, you know, it's, it's almost your bread and butter, probably for want of a, a better phrase, but where do you see that, that going? And, you know, it's, it's interesting now with particularly financial technology and apps on people's phones that they are much more engaged with it. You know, I end up checking, you know, my free trade app and all these different things, you know, probably three, four times a week, you know, probably almost on a daily basis. And that is that's a dramatic shift change in the way that I engage with kind of financial yep. products. And you do end up having more knowledge about where things are. And I just would be very intrigued as to, to kind of what you think the future will be of impact investing. Uh, I think we're going to go through a bit of a transition. So again, this is, this is typical uh, financial services for me, a whole industry where the industry itself and the people within it exist in their head. So they're all very clever, all of them are very clever, 
And so they, lo- they like to bring that complexity to how they measure almost everything. So when they think about ESG, they've turned it into this, you know, not in reality, but it feels like they've turned it into this giant Excel spreadsheet that says we must measure absolutely everything. I need to know how many tons of CO2, how many this, how many the other. And they all want slightly different things. There are hundreds of organizations claiming to measure ESG and define it and all this kind of stuff. And fundamentally, you know, you know, when you speak to young people, speak to people generally, is this company a good company? Yes or no? That, that's actually the answer. Uh, and so I think all this stuff, yes, data is important, but it shouldn't be the driver. It's the stories and the emotional connection with people. It's the stories that will get them to change their behavior. And that's really what this is about. It's about trying to get the broader society to change its behavior. And you won't do that through data. Data supports that. You'll do that through taking people on a journey and emotionally connecting with them and saying, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. An alternative to that might be doing this thing over here. So for me, it's about the stories and bringing them to life. And it's about removing all the greenwashing and pretense that goes on in this industry where people are repackaging up existing products and pretending that they are ESG or it allows them to tick a box. That is enormously frustrating. Uh, And I think people should see through that and call it for what it is. You genuinely want people to do things which are impactful um, and are going to change the world, not pretend to change the world. Uh, and that, again, is back to the kind of sociopathic way that lots of companies behave, where they see an opportunity and they go after that opportunity, even though it's not quite genuine. It's not quite their purpose. It's not why they wake up in the morning. Um, and I think that needs to wash out as well. But, you know, how do I think it'll play out? I think uh, it needs to come from stories uh, that will change behavior, that will change the level of engagement, and that will change ultimately how people allocate their capital and what they expect from the fund management companies investing their money. And it won't just be about the thing in my head. It won't just be have you turned my pound into a pound 10 or a pound 20. It's how have you done it, how you've behaved, how you've changed the world around you. Uh, that's, that's exciting. I agree. I think it's, I think the S in ESG, the sort of social bit is particularly undefined at the moment, like environmental side, people kind of understand and can kind of quantify net zero governance, again, a bit more kind of technical legal side of things but again quite definable the social side of things i think is you know what we were talking about earlier slightly with community it's um it's it's a bit more um difficult to know um know where that that goes um in terms of the just the kind of the the final few questions that we ask one is governments both sides of the atlantic talk about building back better and in this country as well, in terms of leveling up. And they are, to follow on from that conversation, you know, they can be quite abstract, these, these concepts. You know, we broadly know what they mean, but they mean something different to every individual. What would your advice be um, to, the, to the Prime Minister? Because he would obviously want to inspire more octopuses and, and so forth right around the country. What would your advice be to him to build back better and to level up? I would say that, you know, who are the agents of change in the world? The agents of change in the world are entrepreneurs. Uh, and I believe that really strongly. So, you know, I'm uh, leading an organization of, you know, a few a few thousand people now. And why did we design Springboard to to allow some of our employees to become agents of change, to 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 make the world better around them, to follow their passion, right? The, the prime minister sits on top of a country of 60 odd million people, right? Why can't he and why can't the government create a similar program 
for people who are working wherever they're working within the UK at whatever age in whatever sector why can't you why can't you turn I'm trying to turn Octopus into an army of entrepreneurs why can't uh, the Prime Minister turn us into a nation of entrepreneurs why can't you create a mechanism that incentivizes people to leave their job uh, to go and set their own company up and to create this change. It's very difficult for big companies to create innovation. The real innovation in the world comes from little companies. The real job creation comes from little companies that get it right and start growing really quickly. There are so many economic benefits to supporting young businesses, but you've got to get them started. And I think uh, you can. the government's done a fantastic job actually of encouraging entrepreneurship in this country, but it could go further. It could encourage individuals to leave, to do their own thing. What that program looks like, how you'd fund it, you'd have to speak to the chancellor to work that one out. But th- that, for me, would be a radical idea and would make a real difference because uh, it just it, cre- it creates the ownership at a personal level, and it's so, such an addictive feeling you get being an entrepreneur. It's, it's it's the best drug. It's the best drug ever. I often think sometimes in Britain we fall into the Bill Bryson trap of sort of thinking that we are a. Um, a big country, and I don't mean sort of big on the global stage, which I think we are. I mean, geographically, we talk about trying to want to make different, you know, copy Silicon Valley in different places. And actually, you know, you can get to a huge amount of the UK kind of like within four hours of, of wherever you live in terms of population and so on. And actually, like we should be trying to make the whole of the UK kind of, uh, you know, embody some of that magic from silicon valley or certain aspects of it i often um that would often be the challenge that i would try and push back rather than always just focusing on clusters in certain areas let's uh, let's inspire everyone to do it because there are so many stories pointing to it um and that is uh yeah that's what this podcast try and tries to to focus on and if you um we talked about your kids earlier and saying that you know approaching late teens now what differences do you notice in them and the way that they're approaching careers you say they want to work for a good company uh and so on what almost is your advice to a 21 year old simon rogerson in 2021 <laughs> what would i say what if they're going to do their own thing or just generally when they when they think about careers and working for other people just generally careers i think uh, what I would say, I mean, the first thing I'd say, I would say you just go and do your own thing and you don't need to get loads and loads of experience before you do it because you work it out and you work it out really quickly when you're running your own business because out of necessity, you have to. So I'd encourage everybody to, to if, they, if, they, if they wake up thinking about it for enough days in a row, you should go and do your own business, do your own thing. The one bit of advice above everything else I'd ever think about is great business is simply about how you make your customers feel. That is the number one, the most important thing. Never forget it. Uh, and if you remember that, you'll do pretty well. Um, and also, I think if, you, if you're looking at people who don't want to set their own business up, if you don't find something you're passionate about and wake up caring about, you will waste your life. Uh, and I think it's that horrible. Uh, I think if you go and work, if you, you know the old 1980s, 1990s, whatever, go and be a banker, be a lawyer, be an accountant, earn lots of money, that will make you fulfilled and happy. It really won't. It is about, you know, cheesy again. It's about the journey. Uh, find something you love doing. Don't let someone tell you to go and do X, Y, Z because you'll earn lots of money. You will be miserable. So find something you're really passionate about. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, you know, back to Patagonia, this gigantic company just came out of that guy's love of climbing. He loved climbing. That's where it came from. Ben and Jerry's ice cream. They, you know, they both loved ice cream. 
Um, and this is what they built. And, and that's remarkable. You can build a great big business out of a very small idea, but you have to be passionate about it. It has to consume you because that way you'll never stop. You'll never give up. Um, and that's really important because you're going to have lots of setbacks and lots of things won't work as you want them to work. Um, but you'll plow on through. That is very, very inspiring. And is there a, just to finish on, is there a book that has particularly, you know, been inspirational to you either over the last 20 years or, or recently um, that you would recommend to people to read? Uh, do you know what? I, I, and I, this is not, um, I probably shouldn't say something like this. I, I don't I read business books, uh, largely because either the people that have written them uh, uh, generally haven't built businesses um, or it's people that have built businesses and they post-rationalize their success uh, into a way that makes them sound, that makes it sound like it was all uh, quite easy and simple and quite deliberate. And, I, and I, I don't believe that. I think there's an awful lot of luck in business and there's an awful lot of pain along the way. So, you know, individual books, wait, uh, uh, books were about individuals. The Shoe Dog story is pretty cool. The story about Patagonia is pretty cool. But um, I would, I think there are snippets. There are, you know, there are, there are, there are certain sayings or quotes from certain people where you think, actually, that sums up really well. Um, but individual books that I, I, I don't really have the attention span and I haven't found anywhere I go. Actually, that's amazing. Read that one. Um, uh, Shoe Dog's good because it makes me smile. And it was a, a real tale of overcoming difficulties, pain, almost bankruptcy, personal bankruptcy, business bankruptcy. It, it's a, it's a, it, that's a good book. I'm, I'm going to have to change this question because Ben from Gymshark called me out on it as well, saying he doesn't really read them. And uh, <laughs> he doesn't think that's, the, that's the where people should go for ideas. So it's, uh, you have to change it to like a podcast. So I so, said, well, as we're, well, we are recording this on a Friday. What's in Simon's Friday email this week? What inspiring thing are you sending around the octopus office? Or do you know what? It's not that it's not that inspiring um, uh, because it's on quite. So I played I played a game with my um, kids uh, last night, and, and I, it's a pretty basic game. I basically asked them to uh, shut their eyes so they can't see what the other two are doing, and then I asked them questions, and they have to answer the questions yes or no. And yes is your right hand, and no is your left hand. And one of the questions I asked them, I said, "Would you rather live in the 1960s or in the present day?" And then nine to two girls, 19, almost 16, and a boy who's 12. And they can't see each other. And every single one of them said they'd rather live in the 1960s. And so they opened their eyes and we started debating why that was. And their view of why that is, it's just that uh, life seemed more connected and seemed nicer. Uh, um, people were more respectful and kinder and it seemed more fun and more engaging back in the 1960s than it does in uh, than it does today and it's about connection so the ultimate irony is we're in a world that's never been more connected you know i can see i know everything and everyone what what's happening to everyone and everything across the planet in almost real time but i don't think uh, most people lots of people have never felt less connected because you know there's loads of great things about technology and social media uh but but when it replaces the human connection that is so fundamental to people and to the way they operate, it's you know only just above you know water and shelter in terms of our needs to connect with other people. It's this sense of belonging. It's why some people like religion. It's why some people like clubs. It's why some people like certain sports. 
And that's the opportunity. And the way I turned it to my Friday updates, that's the opportunity for businesses and for a business like Octopus is to connect what it, to connect with its customers in a way other people don't. So all we know where I started with, can you connect with your investors? Can they feel part of investing in the people, the ideas, and the industry that change the world? Because if you can connect with them on that basis, it becomes emotional. Then you won't just get their loyalty. You will, they will become apostles for your business. They will tell everyone they, they, everyone they know about your company. And that for me is the ultimate aim. You know, when I, when I talk about my own family, I'm very protective, like everyone is about their own family. And I have this big kind of metaphorical wall I'll build around me and my family to protect them from everything. Very, very occasionally, we let new people inside that circle. And even, even less frequently, we let companies inside that circle because we feel so strongly about not just what they do, but how they behave. That's the opportunity for business. That's about creating that connection. It's about removing loneliness. Uh, and that um, that's what I wrote it about um, today. But it's a very, very interesting answer that your children said there. And that's a very inspiring way to end. I guess this is one question I've been thinking about introducing. So I'm going to try it now, see what you think. If you could go back in time to any point in history, for 24 hours and you just have read-only access, so you just go and kind of witness it and so on, which day would you choose in for which historical event? Oh, that is a brilliant question. Um, I probably wouldn't go back to the event itself. I think one of the most impressive, so I happen to be a bit of a, I'm not really a space nerd, but I think space is really interesting. And I think the best speech, so you asked me about business books and I don't really uh, read business books, but I do listen to speeches and I'll listen to TED Talks and things like that. I think the best speech I've ever heard was uh, JFK's speech about going to the moon. So if I could go back to any day, to any event, I'd go and listen to that speech. I think he made it one of the universities in America. Because mm. I listened to that speech as someone who already knows what happened. And, you know, I'm... I'm in generations past it, I listen to that speech and the hairs on my arms stand up that this is a guy who says, you know, before the end of the decade, we're going to send a rocket made of stuff we don't know what it's made of yet. We're going to send it up to that, uh, to the moon and then we're going to bring it back safely and we're going to stick some people on board. It's absolutely ludicrous that someone would say that, but then to actually deliver it, that for me is inspirational and exciting and something I want to be part of. So that's a day I'll go back to you. That's what I want to listen to and witness. I think that'd be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is, uh, that is good. Having witnessed a few presidential speeches, it, they are very different to UK, uh, prime minister speeches. Like it's it like, I think, yeah, I think he gave that in a state, like in a stadium, didn't he? In a college stadium. Yeah, I think he did. So, I can't remember. I think, well, I don't know if it was Rice University or it was a university. I think it was a university or a stadium. Yeah. But it, but it's amazing. If people haven't listened to it, they should do. Brilliant. Simon, thanks so much for this. It's My been pleasure. such Thank a great chat. And um, yeah, hopefully we can do it in person later in the year as well. <laughs> Cheers, Jimmy. Cheers. The great British explorer George Mallory, who was to die on Mount Everest, was asked why did he want to climb it. He said because it is there. Well, space is there. And we're going to climb it and the moon and the planets are there, and new hopes for knowledge and peace are there. And therefore, as we set sail, we ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this episode in the third series of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Word of mouth is everything in the audio world. So if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and send us to a friend. You can find us at Jimmy's Jobs on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also check out our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co for our episode archive, blog posts, and more. If you are a new listener, do look through our previous episodes. We've interviewed entrepreneurs disrupting industries from fintech to hospitality to model engineering. So whatever sector you're interested in, there'll be something for you there. If you'd like to get in touch, please email us at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. Thanks to our producer, Leo Danchak, and thanks to George de Cleland for the artwork.